you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3. So I was off most of this past week, so we'll take a break from, from John. We'll pick up back there at the second half of John 1 uh, next Sunday. But today we'll, uh, we'll go back to, to Daniel 3 and look at one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, uh, the, the young men uh, who get thrown into the fire in Babylon. You know, we don't, as I mentioned earlier, we don't know what the new year will hold, uh, but no matter what trials or joys may come upon us and to us, we can be assured that, that Christ is with us. Even in the midst of fiery trials, the promise that we have is that Christ is with us. All right, let me give you a little context here as we get into, before we read Daniel 3. Um, here in Daniel, the, the Israelites are in exile in Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel was a, a prominent Israeli guy who had, who, who had come to prominence in Babylon. He was a, an Israelite who had gained the favor of the king by rightly interpreting the king's dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar had made Daniel the governor over Babylon. Um, and when Daniel was made governor, he had asked permission to make three of his friends um, rulers along beside him. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are his three buddies. And so they got uh, positions in the government as well. And so you got Daniel, who's sort of the governor, uh, and then his three buddies who are helping him rule and, and govern, we might say. Well, about this time, Nebuchadnezzar decided that he was going to make a golden idol to be worshipped. And he made a pronouncement. He said, you will either worship, you'll bow down and worship this idol, or you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so uh, he, he made that pronouncement. And of course, Daniel and his buddies didn't bow down and worship. They worshiped the one true God and didn't bow down to other idols or other gods. And so um, the Chaldeans, who were another group of people there in, in Babylon, accused the Jews. They went to the king and tattletailed and said, the Jews aren't bowing down. And so the king gets furious and, and, and calls them to come to him, particularly Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says to them, you know, what's going on? And they said, yep, it's us. We're not bowing down to you. And he says, so who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's the big question that comes to us in, in Daniel 3. Now, before we read this, I want you to notice, how, one of the things we're going to see is how these guys are living in what we would call a pluralistic society. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was great with all kinds of gods. You could worship whatever god you wanted to. As long as you worshiped him, and he was primary in your affections, he didn't care what else you did, as long as you understood how important and glorious he was. And so inside that, that society, and we'll see that come out today, in, inside that society, we see a way to, a way to live. The, the, no, Daniel and his buddies here, in the midst of this, don't start a riot. They don't even sort of even look to oppose the government outright. They don't go causing trouble. They didn't hold demonstrations and march in the streets or anything. Nothing, not, not, those things are necessarily wrong. But here's how they opposed the government. They listened to what was commanded. And if that command was against the command that God had already given them, they just didn't obey it. If the king says bow down and God says don't bow down, they didn't bow down whatever the consequences might be. So that's what we find here. The young men simply refusing to obey a command from the king, which was counter to a command that they already had from God. 
All right, with that in mind, we're going to pick up the reading of this story about halfway through the chapter. We're going to start in verse 16. It'll be here on the, on the screen behind me. So we're going to read from Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you use the story of these young men to, to inspire us to faithfulness, to convict us about our own fear and our own shortcomings, but yet to drive us to the one who is in the fire with us? to drive us to Jesus, to help us, to watch over us, to care for us, to give us strength in the midst of the trials. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so at the end of chapter 2 of Daniel, just kind of go back in the story a little bit, Nebuchadnezzar had recognized the power of Daniel's God. Remember, Daniel had interpreted this dream, and when Nebuchadnezzar essentially asked him, how did you do this? He didn't say, well, I'm wise, I'm better than everyone. He said, no, God, the one true God of Israel, has given me the strength, the power, the ability to, to do this miracle, to interpret this dream. Because the, the Nebuchadnezzar's wise men couldn't, couldn't do anything. They couldn't figure out what was going on. But Daniel 
was able to interpret it well. Um, so, but Nebuchadnezzar had never confessed that the God of Daniel was the only God, or we might say, you know, had personal faith or saving faith of any sort in God. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar had some, you know, sort of moment where he came to faith in, in Christ or in, in the one true God, we would say. You know, we see the reality of that fact here as we get to into chapter 3. Um, because it's here where we find Nebuchadnezzar building this magnificent monument. And he built it to himself for his own glory. The, um, he built this tower 90 feet high, yet it tells us it was only 9 feet in diameter. Now, modern architects tell us that this needle-like structure was a work of genius in that day. Just to stand up straight <laughs> involved technology that maybe we didn't even realize they had. And so this is a marvel, 90 feet high. Think about that, nine, basically nine stories high, like a needle that shoots into the sky. And leaders from all the provinces that Nebuchadnezzar ruled came to Babylon to bow down to this image of gold which had been constructed. But not only to bow down to the image, but to bow down to the one who had built it, to Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the wise man, right? Um, in their eyes. But again, in this, we see the ruthlessness of Nebuchadnezzar. We see uh, a few chapters earlier, he had threatened to kill the wise men who weren't able to interpret his dream. He was like, you need to figure this out or I'm going to kill you. He's a ruthless guy. We see that again here. He says, anyone who doesn't bow down before this image are going to be cast into this burning, fiery furnace. Now, nine times, just in chapter 3, the word worship is used to describe what Nebuchadnezzar expected of his people regarding, regarding this idol that he created. The word worship. Think about this. This is the epitome of narcissism, demanding that everything and everyone ultimately be about him and his glory. Nebuchadnezzar saying, I'm the great one. Look at me. Worship me. There's a massive problem with that, right? We should see it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't obviously able to see it. The problem is that Nebuchadnezzar is just a man just like every one of us. Just like everyone who's ever walked on the face of the earth outside of Jesus Christ himself. Nebuchadnezzar is just a man. Any glory that he possesses is not a result of his own greatness, but is a result of the fact that he was made in the image of God, the one true God, who alone is worthy of our worship. In contrast, in opposition to the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar here, we're brought face to face with the courage and character of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are said, three young men who, from what we know about them, had lived in privilege in Jerusalem. We might even say their upbringing was easy, privileged, the best schools, the best training, the easiest, you know, the, the, having the most provisions, all of those things. And you might think that because of that, their life there might have made them soft or timid. But not these guys. These three young men in the, do not flinch in the presence of this powerful king, even though they surely knew that he meant what he said when he said that he was going to throw them into the fire if they didn't worship him. They... Their, their trust in God was greater than their fear of the king. And that in any fear that they might lose their own lives here. And so they tell Nebuchadnezzar that they know that God is able. When he asked them, 
You know, who is, it, in verse 15, right after, right before what we read, he said, you know, who is the God who will deliver you out of our hands? They're clear. They believe that God, the one true God of Israel, is the God who is able to deliver them from the furnace. But notice what they tell him. They tell him that even if God doesn't deliver them, they still will not worship Nebuchadnezzar's gods or his image. They don't presume that God will save them, but they believe that he can. And beyond that, they believe that everything's going to be okay, even if he doesn't. This is amazing. They're able to see beyond themselves. Not only beyond themselves, but beyond the situation, even into eternity. What has given them this courage? Well, notice in verse 12 that the accusation against them. We'll go back up a little bit. He says, um, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is what it says. It says, these men, O king, this is the, these are the Chaldeans making their accusation against them. It says, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. <laughs> Think about that. The jealous Chaldeans say to Nebuchadnezzar, these young men pay no attention to you. And Nebuchadnezzar goes into a rage. He can't handle that. Everyone has to worship him. But the reason that they could stand in the presence of the great earthly king and pay him no attention is because all of their life, they've become accustomed to paying great attention to the one true God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They don't have to give wrong attention to a man because they're giving right attention to God himself. And so they're secure in who they are and who their God is. The God who sets up and deposes earthly kings. But what is clear in this passage is that the, it's not the strength of these young men's character or even their courage that saves them in the fiery furnace. We, we acknowledge and admire their courage and their character. But that's not what saves them. It's the one who's in the fire with them that saves them. Who is this one that when Nebuchadnezzar looks at him says the fourth one is like a son of the gods? It's Jesus. It's not the son of the gods. It is the son of God. Theologians call this a Christophany and a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So before he became a baby in Bethlehem, he made some appearances in the Old Testament. Remember, he was alive. He's eternal. He's always existed in heaven and glory. And so throughout time, he's made appearances, and this is one of those appearances. These young men, full of courage, full of character, standing in the fire, opposing the earthly king's false reign to honor the right, true reign of the one true God, are met in the fire by the Son of God himself, who's there with them. You get how comforting this is? Not just for these guys, but even for us. Because, you know, we read this story to our kids, right? Particularly, maybe even when they're, when they're scared. We, we pull out the scripture or story Bible and we say, well, let's, you're, you're afraid, let's read about the three young men in the fire. Do they have reason to be afraid? Yes. Well, why were they able to not be afraid in the fire? Well, they might have actually been a little afraid, but why were they able to, to, to live even in the midst of fire trials? Because Christ was with them. 
And we're right to tell our kids and be comforted by the fact that even in the midst of our trials, of our challenges, of our persecutions, the reason we can stand up, the reason we can continue to pursue faithfulness, continue to trust God is because he's there with us. This story proves that God can show us, can show up in the midst of our fear and suffering and even in the midst of our struggles with sin and actually deliver us from the fire raging around us or in us. Like I said, we, we meet here today on December 30th on the precipice of a new year. And it's good for us to give thought to the year that has passed. And we do that. And some of us have been through trials. <laughs> and some of us maybe are still struggling to worship God in the midst of that. Some of us have been able to say, yes, we're clinging to this. But we trust that God's going to give us that strength. But we also look forward to give thought to the year that is to come and to acknowledge that we don't know what this new year might bring. To know whether it might be peace or whether it might be hardship. Here's what Peter says about this in, in his first letter, in 1 Peter. He reminds us that we shouldn't be surprised at the trials that come into our lives. Here's the, the words of the Apostle Peter. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Where's his glory revealed? Well, in this story, it's revealed in the midst of the fire. That's when Nebuchadnezzar sees the glory of the one true God. You know, it's obvious that we'd be wise to emulate the courage and character of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and especially as we face these fiery trials that, that Peter talks about. We, we need to learn from their example and trust that God would give us their conviction and courage. But we also need to see ourselves and someone else in this story, and that's Nebuchadnezzar. We've got to be able to look at our own lives and say, am I building monuments to my own glory? Ever since the Tower of Babel, humanity has risen up, called ourselves great, and erected monuments to make us look like gods or try to earn our way to God. How often do we do acts, even good and righteous acts, so that others might see us and sing our praises? How often do we get frustrated that we sacrifice and serve others and yet get no recognition? Or worse, that someone else who does less than us gets recognition while we don't. These things drive us crazy at times. Why? Because like Nebuchadnezzar, we're narcissistic as well. We're about our own glory. We often find ourselves at the center of our very own pity parties. And in those moments, we have more in common with Nebuchadnezzar than we do with Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. We live in the continually burning furnace of temptation and sin and selfishness. The ironic thing about our relationship with God is that in order to rescue us, God lifted up his son, but it wasn't in a moment of glory as we would define it, that he was lifted up, that redeemed us from our, our penalty of our idol worship. Christ was lifted up, beaten and battered, mocked and ridiculed upon a cross, an emblem of shame and guilt. In humility, Christ died for us. 
on a cross where everyone could gawk at him. Jesus died. But as we think back to Nebuchadnezzar, this monument on the plains of Babylon had no power. It would ultimately crumble. As far as I know, there's no evidence of it today. Temporary. Powerless. But Christ's death has the power to save. It was a power that would never fade. For even in death, Jesus' power didn't cease. It persevered on the third day. It raised him from the dead to reveal the only power that actually gives us hope. Especially in the midst of the humility of this world. The other interesting thing that we've already kind of touched on here is that, that about this event recorded in Daniel 3 is that God doesn't save these young men from going into the fire. God has the power to keep us out of the fire. He could have brought the whole world to end in that moment if he wanted. But he also doesn't promise to save us from the fire. But he does promise that he will be with us in the fire and he will redeem us through the fire. Maybe to continue life on earth like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or, or maybe he'll save us and take us onward through death to glory. The comfort that we have in Christ is that whether our earthly bodies live or die, we will ultimately live. Paul said, thinking about his life, he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live or die, we do so with Jesus. The power that raised Christ from the dead, the promise there is that it will carry us all the way home. And there's no other path home. There's no other way home. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is a way that seems right to man, the way of building monuments to our own glory. But the end of that path is death. This path that we're on may bring us to danger and suffering and hardship. But if we're trusting in the one true king, it will take us home. That's the promise for the king of kings and the Lord of lords has gone through the greater fire force and yet lives today. I'm going to finish by just reading one more promise from Isaiah 43. Listen to these words. Take comfort in this hope. Isaiah 43, uh, 1 through 3 says this. He says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, you are good to us. You care for us. You watch over us. And God, in your wisdom, you oftentimes allow us to go through fiery trials. And in those moments, we are tempted to question your goodness, your wisdom, your sovereignty. God, would you help us to trust you even in the midst of the fire? Knowing that whatever comes, be it joy or pain, you are with us. 
and you are taking us home through the waters, through the fire, through the storms of life. God, you are with us. You are the mighty one of Israel, our Savior. Help us to trust in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.